I'd like to acknowledge that this broadcast is coming to you from stolen Gadigal land and pay my respects to Gadigal elders past, present and emerging. Gadigal people have been sharing stories and songs on this land since the beginning of time. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. A quick heads up for listeners, this episode contains discussions of race and racism. It also contains discussions of suicide. If this brings anything to the surface for you or you just need someone to talk to, you can always call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Record Collections and Recollections. Out of the Box with Mia Hull on FBI Radio. Hey, thanks for tuning in to Out of the Box. I'm your host, Mia Hull, and today I'm joined by Sweatshop Literacy Movement creative producer Shirley Lay. Shirley has performed at the Sydney Writers' Festival, the Sydney Festival and the Wollongong Writers' Festival and was awarded the West Words Emerging Writers' Fellowship in 2017. Her work has been published in SBS Online, The Lifted Brow and The Griffith Review and as of today, you can find her writing in the latest sweatshop anthology entitled Racism. Thanks for joining me on the show today, Shirley. Thanks for having me, Mia. Later in the show, I do want to talk about the latest sweatshop anthology Mm because that's an amazing thing that's just happened. But first, I want to go back to Western Sydney in the 90s. You're a second generation Vietnamese Australian. Can you paint a picture of what that's like? So my parents uh, arrived in Australia as, I guess, um, Vietnamese refugees. They were boat people um, and they came here in 1983 and um, they, it was a, um, I guess, a story of starting over for them and um, I I very much feel like um, their journey started off in, um, strangely enough, the inner west and um, they were located in um, Newtown and they, I guess they were, quote-unquote, put there by the government at the time. And um, Newtown was a very different place back then to what we know of it now. And eventually they um, learnt, went to English classes, um, picked up jobs at, you know, Australia Post and um, relocated to Western Sydney. Um, growing up as a second generation Vietnamese Australian in Western Sydney was, I think, a very complex and layered experience. Um, in the 90s, there were two main narratives that I was absorbing as a little Vietnamese Australian girl. The first one was um, 1996, where Pauline Hanson stood up in the House of Representatives and delivered her maiden speech, saying that uh, Australia is in danger of being swamped by Asians. And the other narrative that I was seeing a lot on the news was this... uh, quote-unquote drug problem in uh, Cabramatta, which is also in Western Sydney. And um, that particular issue affected, um, I would say, the Vietnamese community um, 
to a great extent. And so um, my parents made me listen to the news a lot because they wanted me to be able to speak English in a polished way just like the newsreaders, just like the white newsreaders on the TV. And I guess little did they know that I was also absorbing the messages that were being communicated by the newsreaders. And um, so I think at that period of time, I wasn't able to really think critically about what I was hearing and absorbing. And so I really internalised those messages and I it manifested in a way where I became like a little perfectionist. And um, when during my primary school years, that really showed itself. I just wanted to be perfect in every way that I could to almost make up for the ways that greater Australia saw me as, um, you know, um, as lacking. Like I was Asian, Vietnamese, and from Western Sydney. And so um, the narrative in the wider media was that I was not wanted in white Australia's vision of this country. And so um, I became a real like little annoying overachiever. That was me at Yaguna Public School. Um, shout out to Yaguna Public School. Um, I... Uh, I, you know, was hugely over overachieving. I pushed myself a lot and um, didn't really give myself room to fail. Um, and even despite me, like, trying to be, like, this, like, school captain and then ducks and trying to be perfect in every way, um, in the school environment, there were still those comments like, oh, you're Vietnamese, like, do you have drugs, that type of thing. And of course, it was just like schoolyard banter. And it was a, actually a very culturally diverse environment. But it was interesting to see how the students around me, despite being um, culturally diverse, also absorbed the messages that we were receiving from wider Australia. And um, I guess a lot of it was meant in tongue in cheek, but it's amazing how as a child you really can um, let those messages seep into how you view yourself and how you view the community around you. I think it was very interesting in the way that um, the kids around me were very much from different um, culturally and linguistically diverse communities and they were hyper aware of the stereotypes and so um, either we were you know taking on those stereotypes and like either making light of them or trying to find empowerment in the identity that was imposed on us or it or there was me who was like actively trying to reject it as much as possible and yeah like dismantle all of yeah those dismantle those stereotypes but that was toxic in its own way because I was this just uh I guess that self-hatred was there at, at that time already and when you got to high school was it the same kind of cycle yeah I think that that was there in the early years of high school. So I went from Yaguna Public School to um, a selectively, uh, ac academically selective school in um, Surrey Hills called Sydney Girls High School. 
and it was a big change in environment. So despite the fact that um, the high school was, I guess, culturally diverse, um, there was another layer of my of this of my identity that I was kind of dealing with, and that was um, class. Um, I, I often, I guess, felt like um, in that school environment that um, coming from Western Sydney was a thing that you should really be ashamed of. And I, again, I really tried to be that perfectionist, but I burnt out really quickly and, um, you, you know, really struggled to keep up academically in that environment. Um, but I will tell you a little story to kind of capture that shame that I was feeling in that high school environment. I remember the, the school principal at the time getting up on stage at school assembly in front of the whole entire um, school and saying, you know, um, I just want all of you girls here to know that you're the cream of the crop and you're all going to go on to do such fantastic and amazing things and you're the next generation of leaders in the world and you certainly aren't going to end up working in like a sandwich shop or something. And those words really stayed with me because I thought to myself, well, I could see that she was very well-intentioned in trying to empower us, but as I was looking around, around, looking around me, all the other girls were from different parts of Sydney, very much like myself, from um, a culturally and linguistically diverse background, and they were hearing this message that in order to become a respectable and desirable member of society, you definitely weren't the type of person to be working in a sandwich shop, which is hilarious because uh, coming from a Vietnamese background, I have family friends and family who sell bun me in sandwich shops. And that's the story of our parents and of the generations before us. And so what does that do? What, is, what does a statement like that do to a teenage girl? You kind of at the time, I wasn't thinking critically. It really stayed with me, but in a toxic way where I would kind of resent coming from Western Sydney and think that, you know, I can't wait to get out of here and I can't wait to be this, like, high-achieving person um, that doesn't have to do... It doesn't have anything to do with um, where I've come from. Yeah, that's interesting. It's like it was so disempowering that it, it pushed you the way she wanted, but not yeah. not in the way that she intended to do so. And it was so disempowering and toxic that I think it was a large part of why I burnt out because when something so toxic fuels you like that, um, it's hard to find the positivity in that purpose. Yeah, of course. Mm. Um, you briefly touched on where your parents had come from before and I want to get into that very soon. But first, we're jumping into a song by 21. Tell me about it. So 21 was this up-and-coming uh, K-pop girl group, and it was in the, I believe, early or mid-2000s. And at Sydney Girls, yes, you know, there were a lot of Asians, but I, I kind of cringe at talking about um, Sydney Girls like that because in my mind like Asians is not really 
you know, just one group of people. There's a lot of diversity in that as well. Um, but uh, because there were many Asian Australian students there, we did look to the cultural products that were coming from uh, Korea at the time. And uh, K-pop was becoming this more well-known thing in the Western world. And 21, this all-girl group, and I guess they were kind of different from the other K-pop girl groups in that they didn't have too much of a feminine image. Um, they were quite a strong presence. And so this song, Fire, was really catchy. I had a, um, you know, a really close friend who saw that the lead singer in the group had this cool straight fringe with bleached blonde bits. And so, you know, we just skipped school one day so that she could go to the salon in Chinatown to get that hair. And she ended up, I don't think she ended up liking it very much. <laughs> but, you know, um, it was, you know, just, yeah, it, there, that was a fun memory to look back on. Amazing. Let's jump into that one now on FBI Radio 94.5. This is Fire by 21. You're listening to Out of the Box with me, Mia Hull and Shirley Lay. I go by the name of CL21. It's been a long time coming, but we're here now. And we're about to set the roof on fire, baby. Uh-oh. You better get yours, because I'm getting mine. That was Fire by a band called 21 on FBI Radio 94.5. Right now, I'm joined by Sweatshop Literacy Movement creative producer Shirley Lay. Shirley, we were talking about your parents before as Vietnamese refugees. Where were they from? They specifically came from uh, Saigon um, in uh, South Vietnam. And uh, at the time... Um, as a young man, my, my dad was conscripted to join the South Vietnamese Army. Um, and so in 1975, at the end of the Vietnam War, which, were, which was um, signalled by the collapse of Saigon mm. when the North Vietnamese troops um, came in and took over the city, um, I remember one particular memory of my father's, which was... Um, he sat at the front door of his family home with a gun by his side and he'd made a decision to, I guess, end his life if the troops came into their family home and said, do you have a soldier here? Like, you know, what's um, that could lead to complications for the rest of the family. So, yeah, it was... It, it definitely was such a difficult time for them and... I do want to make a point that there were that um, that particular experience isn't indicative of every other South Vietnamese person's experience at the time, and I do go into um, what it was like for my mum's side of the family on during those particular days in 1975 in my story in the um, racism anthology that Sweatshop um, is coming out with. And so, uh, yeah, I, I hear these stories from my parents, but I very much understand that um, they they are very much my parents' stories and it's taken me a long time as an artist and a writer to kind of claim my own stories as well and not 
kind of um, rely on this very traumatic and painful past that my parents went through to make art. I feel like um, during my university years, um, I, I saw a lot of stories that were talking about like the previous generation's trauma and pain. But, you know, I'm sitting here, I guess, as a second generation Vietnamese Australian, and um, I have written works where I classify myself as a as someone who can't really speak to the refugee experience because I feel like that experience in today's current context in Australia is also one that, you know, obviously we need to really um, listen to as Australians. Um, but, yeah, th that's kind of... Those are kind of my feelings about it. And I, I do go into it um, in, I guess, personal essays and things like that as well. What kind of jobs did your parents have in Vietnam before they came here? Um, my father worked as an engineer and my mother was a chemistry high school teacher. And when they came to Australia, my father decided to study again and he became... he graduated from uni of University of New South Wales with a master's in um, engineering, master's of science, I believe, which um, allowed him to work as an engineer. Um, my mother did not pursue her studies again. I guess by that time she was, um, she had my brother to take care of. And so she, she started at um, Australia Post as a, one of their postal workers at a mail sorting facility. And I think in that environment, she actually saw the Vietnamese or she met the Vietnamese community in Australia. And um, yeah, my, a lot of my understanding of the Vietnamese community in Australia is rooted in that network of Vietnamese workers at Australia Post. And you just mentioned your brother. He came over to Australia with your parents, My parents, didn't he? Mm -hmm. Yep, he was on the boat with them. Um, I can't say that I've spoken to him much about that particular experience. Um, and I guess with such a big age gap between us, at times he does feel like a third parent. And mm -hmm. so, um, yeah, he he's always been quite a mysterious figure in my life. Um, what do you mean by that? Did you just not have a good close uh, relationship with him? Uh, well, I guess it was more like, you know, the third parent situation with your parents out away at work. Like he was like supervising his younger sister. Um, I wasn't allowed in his room. But when I did go into his room, I did find those Tupac CDs and um, they really sparked a lot of interest in me. And I was like, what is this, you know? What's this music? Um, and bear in mind at the time, in keeping with my parents wanting me to be this very pop, this person who spoke polished English and all the, these other things, they also made me um, take piano lessons. And so the only music I was really listening to was like Tchaikovsky and things like that, which I just didn't feel connected to on any level but I could see that my brother was very connected to music and um, Tupac was an artist that he felt that connection to as I think many young men in Western Sydney did at the time and still do. 
let's grab a CD out of your brother's room now. Mm-hmm. What's the one you've picked? <laughs> um, I have specifically picked the track um, Changes. Um, I did hear it a lot. I think even when he moved out, I, I still heard that song um, playing in his apartment. It's Changes by Tupac on FBI Radio 94.5 and this one comes with a language warning. No changes. Wake up in the morning and I ask myself, is life worth living? Should I blast myself? I'm tired of being poor and even worse, I'm black. My stomach hurts, so I'm looking for a purse to snatch. Cops give a damn about a need, bro. Pull a trigger, killing, he's a heat, bro. Get it to the kids who the hell cares. One less hungry mouth on the welfare. First ship them, don't let them deal with brothers. Give them guns, step back, watch them kill each other. It's time to fight back, that's what Huey said. Two shots in the dark now, Huey's dead. You're listening to FBI Radio 94.5 DAB, or if you're streaming online, that track was Changes by Tupac, and it was chosen by my guest on Out of the Box, Vietnamese-Australian writer Shirley Lay. Shirley, was the attention to become a writer when you went to uni? Yeah, I when I got into uni, I did a Bachelor of Arts in Media uh, degree, and a lot of my units a lot of the units that I was picking was geared towards writing. And so, um, yeah, I, I was very interested in writing. I felt like maybe it was the only thing that I was good at at that point. And um, it was a very interesting experience going to Macquarie University. Um, one of the first things I realised was I was often either the only or one of a few people of colour in my classes. And and you've just come from primary school and high school in both very culturally, very culturally. and linguistically diverse places. Exactly. So it was kind of like, whoa, yeah. this is like a different part of Sydney or something, or, you know. Um, and one of the classes was on Australian media and the tutor brought up this question about how diverse Australian media is and I just remember this blonde girl sitting next to me she was really sweet like before the tutorial we kind of just introduced ourselves we were first year university students and all that jazz and she just put up her hand and said um yeah it's not very diverse in Australian media and then she was like but I'm not really sure like I've had many dealings with like um non-white non-caucasian people and it's this is like some one of the first times that I'm sitting next to an Asian and I was just like whoa where is this coming from and it caused such an uncomfortable silence in the classroom and the tutor was kind of just trying to um, navigate what that uh, classmate had just said but um, it was incredibly um, confronting for me because I was like, what is this environment? Like, where, I- where are the, um, you know... You were so sort of othered by that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It kind of, I've, like, honestly, coming from Western Sydney, I was like, like, bro, where are the other ethnics? Like, what's going on here, right? Um, was that one of the only times you experienced... A type of discrimination there? Oh, uh, unfortunately not. I do remember um, another experience where 
I had a um, music and arts journalism unit and the tutor there was this uh, a white man who had amazing Johnny Cash stories and all this stuff. But um, in the first tutorial, he called out the role and he came to a really long name and he looked over at all of the students and I was sitting at the very end and he looked at me and I didn't respond to that name because it's not my name. And he was like, uh, he said it again and then he looked at me again and he was like, oh, you at the back, like, is this you? And I was like, no, that's not my name. And he was like, are you sure? Because out of everyone in this room, it would you know, more than likely be you. And Are you I was, sure that's your name? I was just like, uh, dude, like, no, it's just not my name. But um, I do remember the other students, like, looking at me and um, some of them were looking at me with, like, pity. Others were just shocked that he'd just said that. Um, and it was a very uncomfortable experience and... In this class, we had a system where every week uh, we had like a workshop session and he would go around picking out particular students to read their work, um, like short writing exercises. And I just noticed that for six whole weeks, this man did not ever pick me to read my work. And I was like, huh, that's strange. Like, how am I going to get the feedback, right? And how am I going to improve if he's not even... I guess, listening to what I've written. Um, and so by the seventh week, I'd put my hand up and um, I was shaking, I guess. I just didn't feel safe in that environment. And I was like, hey, like, can can I read my work this week? And um, he was like, yeah, sure, all right. Um, and when I did, he kind of looked at me and he was like, oh, what was your name again? And I was like, Shirley. And he was just like, wow, like... I reckon you can actually write. And I was like, okay, all right. Um, as if that's surprising. Yeah, as if that was surprising to him. And then the following week, by now it was like the eighth week into the tutorial, he said, you know, um, Shirley, he singled me out again. He was like, Shirley, I actually went back and read all of the writing exercises that you've submitted in the past like seven weeks and you're onto something like you can write you know you and he started being encouraging but what I realized was that every single time I'd submitted my writing exercise he had not been reading any of it um he'd just simply ignored it uh and I guess he didn't have to read it because according to that class you just had to submit it to get a grade and you weren't going to be judged on the content of what you had written. So, yeah, that was extremely confronting, but um, thank goodness for that experience because I think it was a good um, starter into maybe the um, industry that I was hoping to join, like in writing in general. When you say that, what, what do you think the takeaway from that experience was? The lesson learnt was that... Uh, like it or not, I would be judged on my appearance and my name before I even had a chance to um, show my writing and show my art. And so, yeah, it was confronting. But um, what can you do? Like, it, it definitely was very disempowering and it definitely made me think twice about 
um, whether this whole endeavour was worth it. Were you trying to publish your work through any other avenues? Yeah, I I thought I was doing well in that um, there was this strange thing where I was getting really good grades for the writing that I was doing in my writing units, but no one would really publish me, not even the university anthology, which I found quite... Um, you know, confronting because I was like, well, well, where am I going wrong? Like, um, how is it that you can get a high distinction in a university classroom, but your work isn't uh, going to be accepted by journals and things like that? I still hadn't figured it out by then. And um, yeah, it took a while to figure that out, I have to say. The next song you've chosen is by Sweatshop Boys. Yep. Why did you pick this one? I picked this song because I think at the time that I was in university trying to figure out what my writing was about, um, I still hadn't had not cottoned on to the power of specificity. And that's something that I really learned from um, joining the Sweatshop Writers Collective and being mentored by Dr. Michael Muhammad Ahmed on the power of specificity in storytelling and being unapologetic about the details that make up your experiences and your stories and not feeling the need to explain things too much. Um, And so Sweatshop Boys, I think their music is incredible and I might not fully understand every single experience that they're referring to, but I appreciate that um, I'm given some sort of insight into their experiences as people of colour living in the UK. And so, yeah, that's why I've chosen this. The track's called Zayn Malik. It's by Sweatshop Boys. You're listening to FBI Radio. Oi, even hipsters ain't safe. You gotta be careful what part of your face you shave. They say, why is Reezy chat about race? Why you breathing about air just like Harry K say? My flow like a ponytail. So when I spit on the skin, it becomes a Harry Krishna. Keep up and watch your feet are getting blisters. Like you're on the bath by the car, but that's the mission. The cooler feds, cooler papers, my youth's gone missing. He's gone Iraq, he's gone to Syria, he didn't listen. Sweatshop Boys and Zayn Malik on FBI Radio 94.5. Right now on Out of the Box, I'm joined by writer Shirley Lay. Shirley, somewhere in your journey to becoming a writer, you ended up studying law. How did that happen? It happened because I was feeling like this whole writing thing was um, maybe not a career for me. Did you start to feel that way because of the experience you had at uni? Yeah, I, I definitely did and feeling, I guess, quite disheartened. And so... I, I, I joined, um, yeah, I joined law school. Does that even make sense? I enrolled, I enrolled into law school, did not have the most amazing time there either, simply because it's just not stuff that really interested me. And, um, yeah, I, I do go back into that experience, um, for a recent work that I did, Um, for a production called Sex, Drugs and Pork Rolls. Um, I was one of the writers on the project alongside Stephen Pham, Winnie Dunn, Omar Saker and, um, yeah, 
for the four riders. Um, and so, yeah, I, I was still struggling with this whole model minority complex and trying to understand um, whether that kind of complex was something that I wanted to, that the type of person that I wanted to be. And I thought law school was going to solve my problems and make me feel like I was a contributing and worthy member of society. But yeah, it totally did not work out. You ended up at the SBS. Oh, yes. During the final year of my media degree, um, SBS radio, SBS Vietnamese radio had a job opening for a presenter. And I did not have the experience for that role. But I brazenly put together my resume anyway. And I'd read this newspaper interview that the executive producer at the time was looking to understand how to connect the radio station with um, the younger generations of the Vietnamese Australian diaspora. And I just thought to myself, maybe I can help out with that. And maybe this is the foot in the door that I need. And so I just walked into this job interview like close to zero experience with radio presenting and radio producing. But I just really kind of tried to sell myself. And I was like, yeah, you know what? I really believe in um, connecting young Vietnamese Australians with our Vietnamese culture and um, trying to foster some sort of conversation between the first generation and the second generation. And... um, I got an internship out of that interview and during that interview uh during that internship I developed a weekly program where I would just go out and interview a young Vietnamese Australian who was doing something that I thought was interesting and just ask them about their experiences and then I would have to go and translate that show back into Vietnamese because a lot of the guests were not speaking fluent Vietnamese and my own Vietnamese isn't at the level where I can have serious conversations about like race and things like that. Um, But throughout that experience, I met so many amazing Vietnamese Australian artists um, and they really informed my understanding of, um, I guess, spaces in the in the creative and art worlds that were more empowering for people of colour. One of those guests was um, Stephen Pham, who is uh, at Sweatshop as well, and that's how I came to know more about the Sweatshop Writers Collective. And Stephen Pham got you to publish some of your work on a different platform. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Tell me about that. I was also, during this time, I was also on the internet a lot, and specifically Tumblr. It was just a never-ending well of great inspiration pictures, but also um, there were little vignettes that I guess other Tumblr users would kind of post up onto their site. And I thought, why not? Why not do that? Like, what if, you know, if these journals or whatever are not going to kind of publish my work then 
you know, I'll put it up here anyway. And I guess from that, um, Stephen really encouraged me and he was like, you know what, like, have you thought about actually trying to become a writer? And I thought to myself, wasn't that what I was doing in university? Um, but no, he, he kind of told me about this local writing competition called Zine West. I believe that was in 2014. And um, at the time, Dr. Ahmed was one of the judges and he just happened to like the story that I submitted. It was about gangers in Bankstown. And um, that's how I was um, became involved in Sweatshop. And I do want to talk about Sweatshop right after the next song. It is by El Fresh the Lion, another Southwest Sydney local. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tell me about it. Yeah, I think um, this song is really powerful in that it comes from another artist from Southwest Sydney. And I think it's really illustrative of the time that I was getting to know artists in my own community, whether it was in the Vietnamese diaspora in Australia as a whole, or whether it was through knowing Stephen as, you know, one of the other writers in Western Sydney. I didn't know any artists even existed in Western Sydney at the time. So it was a very formative experience. Get Mine by Elfresh the Lion on FBI Radio 94.5. There's a fire in my chest, man, I'm feeling it. It's alive and it drives me to excel at this. So I rise up and when I finally get a bit, I'm reminded that I'm still a second-class citizen. They tell me to go home, but I come from here. I can see it in their eyes, they don't want me here. They tell me to play high, but the game ain't fair. Giving a level playing field, I make a rain out here. We were running a race and you gave me a handicap. I turn around and have one of my legs attached. They say you set it up for me the best you could. That Get mine. It was Elfresh the Lion on Out of the Box. You're listening to FBI Radio with me, Mia Hull, and Shirley Lay, a writer from Sweatshop Literacy Movement. Shirley, for anyone listening who doesn't know what Sweatshop is, can you explain it to me? So Sweatshop is a literacy movement um, devoted to empowering Indigenous and POC writers through reading, writing and critical thinking. Um, Our movement um, really provides the training and the mentoring and the employment opportunities for these artists. And I really believe in Sweatshop's work, um, not through just my own experiences, but in seeing how artists there have really grown and become important voices in the Australian literary landscape. What kind of impact has Sweatshop had on your writing? I guess in the first couple of workshops that I participated in, it was such a different experience to the workshops that I was used to in my university degree. And People were, well, everyone, first of all, was from a um, culturally and linguistically diverse background. And so that was already something that was extremely eye-opening. The stories that I was hearing were, you know, nothing that I'd really read in the university syllabus. And the type of feedback that I was getting was extremely tailored to, um, you know, critically understanding the narratives that were already out there about my community and how the stories that I was writing 
were were either going to contribute to that or speak back to that. And that was such an important thing for me to understand and it really gave me a purpose in my writing and um, in my journey as a writer. Yeah, we had Sweatshop Literacy Movement General Manager Winnie Dunn on the show and she said that exact thing, that it was encouraging this critical way of looking at your own storytelling. Mm-hmm. The latest book, well, the latest anthology published by Sweatshop is out today. It's called Racism. What can someone reading that book expect to find inside? Well, they can expect to find 39 stories from Indigenous and POC writers. And this book is going to challenge readers to understand racism in all of the facets that it can present itself. Oftentimes I feel like racism when it's been reported in the media is most likely going to be categorised as physical violence and I think that it's time for wider Australia to see the effects of racism outside of that of the physical harm that it can cause. Um, racism can happen in the uh, institutions that claim to serve and protect us. Racism can happen in the crisp, within the crisp white walls of an office building. And I think these stories are going to really deepen our understanding of what racism can do to um, people of colour and marginalise um, communities and I think that's really important for um, Australia as a whole to understand it. What was it like to work on the racism anthology? Um, it was it's always empowering to be a part of a sweatshop anthology because I think a lot of the time people don't realize that it's not just um, uh, people of color or indigenous writers writing their stories. It's also the editing process that is also handled by um, Indigenous and um, POC artists as well. And also the production of the anthology itself, like the cover, the design of the cover, the work that gets put into the um, the formatting of every single page is um, often, you know, done by someone from a marginalised background. And so that's incredibly empowering because you know your story is in, I guess, safe hands. And um, it's also a statement of solidarity that, you know, I stand in solidarity with um, brothers and sisters from marginalised communities in this fight against um, white supremacy and racism. And I guess anyone interested in grabbing a copy of the anthology, please head to the Sweatshop website, www.sweatshop.ws, or you can head to independent bookstores such as Glebe Books or Better Read Than Dead. Amazing. And I'll pop the link to that up on our show notes on fbiradio.com. Just go into the programs page, click on Out of the Box, and you can find it there as well if you need. Shirley Lay, thank you so much for jumping on the show today. It's been such a pleasure having you. It's been a pleasure chatting to you as well, Mia. Thank you so much for the time. You've chosen an AB original song to finish things up on. Why did you choose this one? I chose January 26 because I don't think that's a song that you only listen to 
on one day of the calendar in Australia. I think that song is for any and all days of the calendar because it's such a powerful statement on the way that white Australia can, I guess, view what Australia means and the identity as that we carry as Australians. And I think, um, yeah, why not? Why not hear that song today? It's January 26 on FBI Radio 94.5. This song is by AB Original. Stick around in a few minutes' time. Bree Kennedy will be here to take you through lunch. Thank you. Bye. You can call it what you want, but it just don't mean a thing. No, it just don't mean a thing. Fuck that, honey. You can come and wave your flag. It don't mean a thing to me. No, it just don't mean a thing. Fuck that, honey. 